I invite you all to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. Today we are going to look together at Psalm 92. Psalm 92. We're going to read the whole chapter together. I ask you to please stand as we read Holy Scripture. The 92nd Psalm, this is God's holy word for us, his people. God's word says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass. And all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of all my, of all my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is God's mighty and holy inspired word for you and for me, the people of God. Let us ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we do give you praise that you have not left us in silence, but you have opened your mouth and spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have let light shine forth for us in our darkness to light the way before us through your word. And we thank you for this word. And we ask that you would bless not just the reading, but also, Lord, the preaching of your word. That you would stand forth from your word and show yourself to us. That you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. That you would write your truth upon our hearts and stamp your word upon our lives. So that we go from this place conformed just a little bit more into the image of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the Holy Spirit. Do that for us, we pray, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated.
This week I was uh, reading an article that was about how there is this competition among high-level, high-functioning business executives, people who are out there in the business world, the corporate world, and who are the big success-driven people at the top, always pushing for that next rung up the ladder. It was an article about how there is a competition to see who can thrive on the least amount of sleep. Now, famously, as some of you may know, uh, Margaret Thatcher, the first woman prime minister of Britain, served from 1979 to 1990. Throughout her whole premiership, part of her big mystique as the Iron Lady was that she did not need to sleep. She famously was said to get by on only four hours of sleep on weekdays. And she didn't take naps. She would do some recovery on weekends. And she did occasionally take some days off and take some vacations. But her big thing was, I'm going to go to bed at 1. I'm going to be up by 5. And I'm going to be ready to run this country first thing in the morning. I'll stay up later than you. And I'll get up earlier than you. And I'll outlast you. And I'll outperform you. That was her part of her persona. And this article mentions that and how there's a similar competition that that often takes place in success-driven, high-profile business uh, circles. People who are out whining and dining their clients till 2 in the morning. And how the unspoken rule was, you better be the first one at the office the next morning. If I'm out the latest, I'm going to get up super early the next day and be in there earlier than I usually am. Just as a badge of honor. Busyness is often a badge of honor. And our society pressures us to do, to earn, to improve, to produce our schedules, our days, and our lives get packed with more and more stuff. Some of you may not be trying to climb the corporate ladder and live in those sorts of worlds. But just in the ordinary wear and tear of, a, of life out here in Glenmore or in the surrounding area, just as a normal parent, happy Mother's Day, by the way, just as a normal mom, just the week of a mom can get filled up with all sorts of stuff and our schedules get crammed and our weeks get packed and we are encouraged by cultural messaging and signaling all around us that this is the way to get ahead. This is the path to success. But all of this busyness as a badge of honor. Look, I can shoulder all this stuff. I can do more and more stuff. I can handle it. I can get it done. I can make it work. This is how we get ahead. As we do that, that busyness as a badge of honor tends to become to lead to breakdown, a busyness breakdown. We see around us and perhaps we see in ourselves that we feel guilty about taking too much time off. Leisure and rest become burdensome because of the anxious thought that relaxation could be mistaken for laziness. We feel anxiety about being away from work or family or church for too long or at all. We're afraid that that will put everything at risk of going wrong 
or falling apart. We resist rest because we don't want to relinquish control. We fear things won't work without us there to make them work. If I'm not there to get it done or to oversee others to make sure it's done right, it's not going to go well. Things are going to fall apart. I better not take that extra week of vacation. I better come back from my one week early. I just got to get back in there and make sure things are working properly. And I'm the only one I can trust to do that. And so we spend energy we don't have and we wear ourselves out. We are tired We're moody, we're anxious, we're fearful, some of us are depressed. And this busyness breakdown ultimately ends with a busyness backlash. This is why we have a society with historic records of job openings at the same time we have historic records of unemployment. Something isn't adding up. Jobs are more available than ever, but more people than ever are hesitant or unwilling to take those jobs and do the work. Now, there's tons, I'm not an economist, there are tons of reasons why that may be true. Partly it's because of, of a government that subsidizes unemployment through stimuluses. That's part of it. And there's always the risk that a government that tries to do too much for you will inevitably take too much from you. That's another line from Margaret Thatcher. She warned about creating a dependency culture that devalues hard work and personal responsibility and encourages people to just think, well, as long as someone gives me some peace and quiet and takes care of me, that's all I need. And I'll give up other goods in my life to get taken care of. There's always that risk, and that's part of our problem. But that surely isn't the whole thing. Lots of very hardworking people are also not going back to work. Not because they like to be lazy, but just because of other factors. And I imagine part of it is because our society, a couple of years ago, finally hit the giant pause button on all our busyness. It forced us to go home and sit down and stay inside and just do nothing for a little while. People finally got to rest. Like they got to really stop and rest for the first time in years. And so there is resistance to go back to business as usual. Well, in our passage this morning, God outlines his antidote to our destructive cult of busyness and the unemployment backlash and the emotional breakdown that it causes. And we can sum it up in one word, Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath comes from a word in Hebrew that literally means stop. Stop. Cease. That's what Sabbath means. The Sabbath, Jesus tells us, was made for you. You weren't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. It was made for your rest. It was made for your rescue. And it was made for your renewal. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, in your sermon insert, it's, I, I put the wrong 
points in there, so that's my slip-up. So as we're going along, the points are a day of rest, number one, a day of rescue, number two, and a day of renewal. So if you're taking notes, you might want to correct those. This is where we're going this morning. And this psalm, Psalm 92, is good news for the busy and the burned out. So let's take these one at a time. First, the Sabbath is a day of rest, verses 1 through 4. Now, before we get into verses 1 through 4, you'll notice that lots of psalms, not all of them, but many of the psalms before verse 1 have a little header. Right? So I'm looking at an ESV, and it says in all caps above Psalm 92, How great are your works. Now, that's something the editor of the Bible put in there. That's not inspired. That's just from the publisher. They put that as a title for what the psalm is about. But underneath that, in much smaller print, in my Bible, and perhaps it's in yours, it should be in yours, because that's not from the publisher, that's in the original Hebrew. This is actually part of Scripture. And what it says is, in the ESV, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. A song for the Sabbath. This psalm is called a song for the Sabbath. And I've titled this sermon, The Sabbath Soundtrack. The truths outlined in Psalm 92 should be the tune of the people of God, the tune that we should hum as we work. This is the melody that should be stuck in your mind. This is the beat, the rhythm that should move you to work for six days leading to the seventh, the Lord's Day. These are lyrics to live by. So, what's this song singing? What's this song telling us? What lyrics should we be learning? First of all, look in verse 1. This first point, 1 to 4, is about how this is a day of rest. So in verse 1 it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. And that word good doesn't mean it's morally correct. Right? That's one way we use good. Right? Morally good or morally bad. And here the idea isn't that it's, it's moral to praise God. That's way too duty driven. It's moral. It's, it's the right thing to do. And how you feel about it's irrelevant as long as you're doing it. It's good. Check that one off the moral box. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it is good to give thanks to the Lord in the sense that it is sweet. It is pleasant. It is satisfying to worship God. The Sabbath is a day where you are invited into the presence of God to sing praises to His name, the Most High God. The God who it said later in the psalm is enthroned forever. Verse 8, you, O Lord, are on high forever, the Most High forever and ever. We're invited to come into His presence and to open our mouths and sing praise to Him. And as we give Him praise, He gives us joy. As we draw closer into Him, He fills us with the sweetness of His presence. He satisfies us with His love. As we lift high who He is, we are reminding ourselves and each other of His sweet goodness for us. And to us and upon us. 
And this is rich food for the soul. We are singing joy into ourselves and to one another. It is good to be in this place on the Lord's day. A special day. In verse 2 we're told, it says, To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And so there we have the pattern as we frame the whole day at the morning and the evening. The beginning and the end should be framed with this idea that we are in this, not just in this physical space, but we're in this time to worship God. That not just a building can be considered the house of God, but this time can be a house of God as well. You're entering into a temple in time, the special holy place of the calendar, of time itself. God has carved off a segment of physical cosmic time and said, this is my time for you. To be faithful to you. To invite you into the holy place to be with me. Frame your day with the worship of God. We declare his steadfast love in the morning. Here we are. So we're doing the first part. But also your faithfulness by night. Christian, don't make the mistake of thinking that keeping the Sabbath is over at noon. It's a whole day for the Lord. So... As you go through your Sabbath day, this is the tune to whistle all the day. This is the holy work that we're called to do. And our, our work during the week is things that we're doing and earning and producing and accomplishing. Our work on this day is to just worship Him and to feed on the goodness that comes to us from praising the Lord. Frame your day in worship. It's not going to look identical for every single one of you. But think to yourself, how can I take one step further in honoring more of the Lord's day than I already do? Can I add one thing? Can I extend my devotion time by 30 minutes? Can I add an extra prayer time? What else can I do to extend and expand my Worship of the Lord and my Sabbath observance more than it currently is. Not as, a, not as a thing to feel guilty about, but as this thing to be eager to do more of Him. More time in His Word, more time in prayer, more time with fellow believers. More, more, more. Because it's good, it's satisfying. Increase your Sabbath observance, Christian. And know the sweet goodness of the Lord more than we already do. He has more for me. He has more for you. This is the day of rest. You have extra time off on a Sunday to give yourself more to the Lord. So let us do that. Now in verse 4, it says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. This is why it's a day of rest, and this is why it's called Shabbat, Sabbath. This is why the name of the day is stop. We call it Sunday. We ought to call it stop day. Cease day. Be still day. That's what it is. The Sabbath is the day where we cease working and we let God work for us. 
For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. This isn't the day where we bring our good works to God and, and offer them up to Him. This is a day for us to sit down, be still, and let His works work for us. Not in a, I'm the master, you're the servant. He's, you know, he's the heavenly butler and I'm going to ring the bell on Sundays and get him to come do what I want him to do. Nothing like that. If that's the way it sounds, it's upside down and backwards and inside out. Why do we call this a worship service? Well, it's because there's a division of labor. We're here to do the worshiping, and he's here to do the serving. Again, not in a, he's our slave and we make him do stuff, but the way Jesus in John 13, the Last Supper, where he, he says, I am your Lord and I am your master. Now, let me wash your feet. That's what it's about. It's we have a God who refuses to let you do for Him. Who demands you let Him do all for you. And that's good news for weary, busy people. That You mean I don't have to work and earn and accomplish for God on my own? You mean I get to come here and let Him feed me with His good works? And all I got to do is praise Him? Wow. Come into this time and sit down and let God and His works do what only He can do anyways. Earlier here in Psalm 90, verses 16 and 17, it says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We come here to let His work establish us. We don't come to do for Him. We come here to let Him do all for us. We come here to remember who Jesus Christ is and the person and work of Jesus that He has accomplished all. That when He was on the cross and He said, It's finished... He really meant it's over. He, he, didn't, he didn't actually mean it has begun. He really meant it's finished. We can cease from our labor and cease from our works and all of our striving to earn from Him and try to please Him. Knowing that in Christ He is always already pleased with us. He has justified you. He has made you right with Him. He is working all things for your good. Come here and just rest in His presence. And let Him work for you. His work satisfies us. We come to rest in His presence on this day. It's not only a day of rest, but the Sabbath is also a day of rescue. A day of rescue. And this is covering verses 5 through 11. Now, the first part of 5 to 11, verses 5 to 9, let's look at that together. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever, for behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish 
all evildoers shall be scattered. Verse 5, he says, How great are your works, your thoughts are very deep. Your works, O God, the works that he does are great. They are large. They are enormous. They are amazing. And the thoughts of God are very deep. Here, thoughts is the idea of plans. What you're doing and what you have planned are great and deep. Imagine here he's looking into the abyss. He's looking into an ocean that is the mind of God and the power of God. That his works are great. They're vast. They're enormous. And his thoughts, his plans, his intentions are deep and bottomless. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has instructed him? No one. His works and plans are deep and vast. And we come here on this day to just pause and through scripture and through prayer and through fellowship and through song and worship, we are here to contemplate his vastness. We are here to consider how deep and wide he truly is. That he is the eternal God. That his power is unlimited. That his thoughts and plans are deeper than we can fathom. We come here to be reminded of how big our God is, of the majesty of God. That there is one who sits upon the throne of this universe who is not the least bit taxed, who's not the least bit wearied or worried, who rules and reigns without rival, who is mighty and strong. It says, you, O Lord, are on high forever. Verse 8, he's not worried God is in the midst of all his works. He doesn't feel the breakdown of busyness. God's up there running the world and he doesn't feel that his schedule's too crowded and he needs to take a Sabbath. No, we are reminded in Psalm, in Psalm 1, I think it's 121, that he says, He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. You want to have a who can get by on the least amount of sleep competition? God says, I don't. I don't take naps, I don't snooze, I don't sit back in the recliner and take a break, I don't even get tired. Jesus said in John 5, my father is always working. God is doing 10 trillion things at one time and they're perfectly organized and they're perfectly scheduled and they happen right on time. His power, His works, His thoughts, His knowledge is deep and vast. We come here to the one who outstrips all of our efforts, who can accomplish way more than we can, and who doesn't feel the least bit stressed about running a fallen, broken world. He runs it with perfect power and a perfect plan. And we come here to just, in the midst of all the craziness of life, we can rest and realize who our great God is. And we realize as we contemplate God, we realize that what the psalmist says here is absolutely true. He says the stupid man cannot know it. Scripture's not always polite. The stupid man don't get it. The fool can't understand. Can't understand what? What does the stupid fool not get? The stupid fool doesn't understand, verse 7, that... Although the wicked are sprouting like grass, it's spring out here. There are weeds and things popping up in the yard all over the place. 
The wicked are popping up like the weeds and the grass and all the stuff in spring. They're just sprouting and flourishing. The world's filled with sinners. All the evildoers are flourishing like it's a springtime for sin. And the stupid fool doesn't understand that even though the wicked flourish for a season, they will not endure. They are doomed to destruction forever at the end of verse 7. We come to the Sabbath, and especially we come into church to be reminded Don't be like the fool. Don't be like the stupid man who doesn't understand, who looks at this broken, sinful, horrible world and thinks that maybe God has dropped the ball. Or maybe there's something more I need to be doing to make sure the world runs the way it's supposed to do. We are encouraged to relinquish control and to say, you know what, even when it looks like I'm most in control of myself and my time and my schedule, I'm actually not, not ultimately anyways. There is a God in heaven who rules all things and I live under him and so I can be encouraged to actually let go of some stuff and not be anxious and worried and fearful that it's going to fall apart without almighty me. It's a way to be rescued from that anxiety. It's a day to be rescued from fear, from moodiness, from lack of sleep. It's a way to be rescued from that kind of fearfulness that cripples us and that works its way out in all sorts of twisted ways in our relationships and how we speak to people and how patient we are and how understanding we can be. Our busyness corrupts a lot of stuff if we let it get out of control. And so the Sabbath is here every six days to say, stop, cease, look at me on my throne and be at peace. Be still and know that I am God. The wicked might flourish in this world. Things might be broken and wrong. It's only for a season. Spring is here and I'm thrilled it's here, but In the back of my mind, I know it will only last a couple of months, right? We'll go through the summer, and then here here comes the cold again. That is not encouraging for me. But here, we're reminded that the world is in a perpetual winter, it feels like, where love grows cold and wounds are open. And ugliness is rampant. But it's only for a time. It's only for a season. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, as Martin Luther said, it's always springtime. We look at ourselves and we think, the sin in me will only flourish for a short time. And the day is coming when I will be rescued, when I will be delivered from being one of the evildoers, from being sinful myself. The Sabbath is a reminder That my time of being a sinner is short. And one day I will be removed from this sinful world. I will be removed from the very presence of sin. And I will be fully conformed to Christ. This is a day to remind yourselves, Christians, of the rescue that's coming. Not just for this world, but for you.
Jesus has died and risen and raised up for us. And so our salvation is real, but it's not fully complete yet. But the day is coming because there is a mighty God on his throne who has a new heavens and new earth and a resurrection body waiting for you. Come into the Sabbath and see your rescue from afar. Now in verses 10 through 11, psalmist says, But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. And here, horn is a symbol for strength. You've exalted my strength like that of the wild ox, a mighty strong beast. You have exalted my strength, he says. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of all my assailants. The Sabbath is a sign of our strength, not of our weakness. If we're worried that if we take too much time off, it's going to look like laziness. If we, if we rest too much, too much relaxation, that might be mistaken for slackness. No. The Sabbath, taking a day off from everything to concentrate on worshiping the Lord, this is a day of strength, not of weakness. The Sabbath is a sign of our strength, not our weakness. And the Sabbath is also the table where God blesses us in front of our enemies. Remember Psalm 23? Psalm 23, 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The Sabbath is where we stop, where the rest of the world keeps going right through Sunday and into another week in this perpetual busyness cycle. We hit the pause button. We stop. We stop striving, struggling, running and racing, climbing and pushing and clawing to, for success and more stuff and get more stuff. To, we just stop to observe this day and this is a sign of our strength where we come to God's table, literally at the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, but also here in worship to a world who looks on and they see us, our enemies see us seated at a table, feasting with our Lord. And He anoints our heads with oil. He hosts us. He feeds us. He gives us His rich food and drink to strengthen and satisfy our souls to give us strength for the next six days. And our enemies look on helpless. They cannot come to this table and they cannot touch us at this table. We are here in the house of the Lord. Our enemies look on and they sneer and they mock and they say, you're never going to succeed that way. It's never going to work. But we say our God works for us and he blesses us on this special day. We can relinquish our control because God is in control. And we can know the Sabbath is a preview of God's new creation. As it says, My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, verse 11. My ears have heard the doom of all my assailants. Where do we hear that? We hear that as the word is preached and read and proclaimed. We hear it as we pray the prayers of victory 
for one another. We hear it in the psalms and songs we sing of advance and marching on to Zion. We see our enemy's defeat ahead of time as in a vision because we see God's good future that he has for us. The Sabbath is this little sign of what the whole earth will be like. It's new creation in microcosm. It's a little picture, a little parable for the onlooking world to see what our God will do in the future, where the whole, the whole of eternity will be our great Sabbath, the great rest God has for us, Hebrews 4, where we rest in the presence of Christ forever and ever in a land of ultimate blessing and perfect joy that lasts forever. The Sabbath is your foretaste. Come to the table of the Sabbath and taste the victory that God has for you. We see and hear our victory in word and sacrament and worship and rest. This psalm is the Sabbath soundtrack. This is the thing that should be playing as the church marches out into battle for the next six days and then comes back to be renewed again. That takes us to our final point this morning, the day of rest, the day of rescue, and finally, the day of renewal. The end of the psalm, verses 12 through 15. It says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Christian, when you keep the Sabbath, you will flourish. Rather than missing an opportunity for a little more advancement and getting a few more things done and getting ahead of schedule, rather than a day to make improvements, when we strive and struggle in that way, we actually will get ourselves more and more behind. We're going to dig ourselves deeper and deeper. Whereas instead, in God's economy, when you sit back and you observe the Sabbath and you say, I don't have to do that extra chore today. I don't have to go do that extra thing this is actually the path to flourishing, to rest in God's presence, to praise and worship Him, to spend a little extra time with Him today. This is how I will flourish. Sabbath by Sabbath, slow and steady, the way a, the life of a tree is. A tree that's planted and grows over generations until it reaches its full maturity, strong and tall, and as generations of human beings come and go, the mighty tree stands firm and tall, planted in the house of the Lord, flourishing. Even in old age, the most advanced in years, it's still full of sap. It's still thriving. It's full of green. It's ripe for heaven. And we grow riper and riper for heaven, Sabbath by Sabbath, week by week, Slow and steady, day by day. It's not microwaved, it's not all at once, it's not a sprint. But through the ordinary means of grace, like keeping the Sabbath, we flourish and we grow and we deepen our roots in the Lord and we bear fruit that lasts. 
that pleases God, fruit that also we can give away in good works to our neighbors for their pleasure as well. Not to earn anything from God, but just to love our neighbor and to see that they are treated as we want to be treated, just to do them good. The wicked may flourish for a season, but you will flourish forever. That's what the Sabbath is about, a day of renewal. So drink deep, Christian. Stand firm. Bear this fruit and praise your God. This is the Sabbath's purpose for you. So as we close, I remind you of a question I mentioned earlier. Think about how can you advance in your own observance of the Sabbath. What's, this is Easter season, right? During Lent, we lay something down. We fast from something. During Easter time, 50 days of Easter leading up to Pentecost, 50 days of Easter, we're supposed to take something up, to add something on. We lay down something, that's death. We take up something, that's resurrection. That's the pattern of this season of the, of the Christian year. Think about, just in terms of your Sabbath keeping, what's something you can take up? One additional thing to increase your time with the Lord. One thing you can do, and by do I mean not do, (laughs) to rest more in Him. What's a, a, a chore, a thing, a job, an item on your checklist that you can lay down? And what's an additional spiritual thing you can take up to frame the whole day in the worship of God? As you spend time with friends and family and you eat together and you pray together and you read good Christian material and you read your Bible and you just have maybe an extra conversation about the things of the Lord, talk about the sermon, talk about what the Lord's doing in your life, add in some deeper dimension of Sabbath keeping and just watch as the fruit begins to grow in your life, as the rest begins to put you at ease, as the Lord begins to work for you, where you be still and you watch Him do everything for you. I'll close with this verse from Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the antidote to our busyness, to our, to our race to climb the ladder, to pack one more thing into the day, to get one more thing done, to try and get ahead. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the antidote to the breakdown and the backlash that comes from being too stressed, too crammed, too busy. Would you teach us how to relinquish some of those things that we think won't get done without us? Whether it's in parenting or in our jobs or in relationships or finances or or all the other hundred different ways we think we have the control and we think that this world needs us, this thing needs me and can't get done without me. Help us to trust you and to unclench and relax our shoulders and just feel the stress melt away as we come before you week after week to observe the Sabbath, to just be in your presence, to just lift your praises, to just rejoice in how you're in control and we don't have to be and how Jesus has said it's finished and so we're right with you. We don't have to keep running and struggling. 
to make ourselves right with you, we can actually rest in your presence because you're not a condemning God upon your people, but you are our forgiving and loving God, our Savior. And help us to trust in you and help us to believe in the rescue that's coming for this world and for each of us and to see it from afar and to know it's out there and to see that you are in control and your plan is slowly but surely coming to pass, that you are enthroned forever. Give us the rest and the joy, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.